Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm excited to welcome Dr. James Dries back to the podcast today. Today, Dr. Dries and I are going to be discussing meniscus pathologies and meniscus tears in detail, reviewing everything from differential diagnosis to surgical considerations, rehab considerations, and so on. These deep dive episodes have become some of my favorite episodes to do, and I'm excited that we're going to continue that series later this week, welcoming on another great surgeon as well. So I hope you all enjoy this episode. I know I learned a lot from it, and I really appreciate Dr. Dries's time. For more on Dr. Dries, be sure that you check him out online and on Instagram at sports underscore doc underscore Dries. Enjoy the show. Dr. Dries, welcome back to the podcast. I'm super excited to work with you again. Dan, thank you. Pleasure to be here with you. For people who aren't familiar with you, or maybe they didn't listen to our listen to our past episode on the ACL, would you mind kind of refreshing their memory on who you are and all the amazing things that you do? Yeah, sure. My name is James Dries. I am a sports medicine orthopedic surgeon at MedStar Sports Medicine in Baltimore, Um I see patients in uh, Towson and also down in Ellicott City. My background is that I, uh, uh, going back to residency, I was a resident at the Hospital for Special Surgery. I did a fellowship in sports medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, I've now been at MedStar for 10 years. I was in Baltimore for 10 years before that. And in Charlotte, I serve as the co-director for our orthopedic sports medicine fellowship. Um, and work with some teams in the area. I have an associate role with uh, with the Ravens, and I've worked with a number of different collegiate and other teams through sports medicine. Um, so my practice is largely a clinical one, but also devoted to research and uh, and now to building our sports medicine fellowship as well. And somehow you have time to sleep with all of that stuff that you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do. I do. It's, it's a matter of priorities and, uh, and it's also a matter of, of trying to be efficient, but, uh, yes, I think, you know, oftentimes the busier we are, the, um, much more efficient that we need to be. So, um, being busy is good though. I think it, it, uh, gives you a purpose and it, and it helps the day pass more quickly for certain. It definitely does. And you staying busy has been a very good thing because I've heard amazing things and seen incredible things uh, from your patients, especially those who come to you for knee problems. And as we're talking, uh, I literally just referred someone to you because they have a meniscus tear. Um, I just referred someone to you for ACL tear. Um, I know you do amazing work. Diving into the meniscus, though, um, we already we already touched on the ACL. If you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend you go back and check it out. But what exactly is the meniscus? I know a lot of people have heard of it, but not many people can really explain what it is or what it does for. Well, let me start by saying thanks for your confidence in us <laughs> and, and caring for your patients. Uh, I hear nothing but glowing things from them with regard to the treatment and the counsel that they get from you as well. Um, With respect to the meniscus, I would say in its most simplistic terms, the way to think about the meniscus is that it really serves several roles. We know most about its role as a shock absorber inside the knee. So it really serves as a means of transmitting force efficiently across the knee joint. And it allows loads from the femoral side to be passed to the tibial side and then ultimately dissipated into ground reactive forces. But the meniscus plays an important role because 
the way that it functions is that as it expands, it absorbs that stress across the knee joint. And in order for it to do that, it needs to anatomically be intact. It has additional roles though, another role that's a very important role in particular with the ACL discussion that we had previously is that both the medial and lateral meniscus have been proven to have significant roles in stability of the knee as well. So injuries to the medial and lateral meniscus, in particular removal of the medial and lateral meniscus can cause some significant increases in strain on the ACL in particular inside the knee. So they play important roles from a stability standpoint, as well as a load transmission standpoint. You mentioning about that ACL comment there, would you say that if someone was to have a non-contact injury that they ended up injuring meniscus and ACL, would you think it's the ACL that would go first or the meniscus? Like, would it be a shock absorber that goes and causes stress to the ligament or would the ligament be the first one to go um, in your opinion? Good question. I mean, the sequence of injury is generally that the rotational force on the knee leads to failure of the ACL. As the ACL fails, the tibia subluxates anterolaterally, so it excessively internally rotates on the femur, and that puts an excessive load in particular on the lateral meniscus at its attachment posteriorly, causing tears in that location. It's really more chronic ACL insufficiency that typically through excess rotation leads more to tears on the inner side of the knee. So we see medial meniscal tears more characteristically with chronic ACL insufficiency, but we see those lateral meniscus tears in the back in particular with acute ACL injury. And that's really um, best explained as an excessive internal rotation that results from the ACL rupture itself. And anatomically, the meniscus is rather complex. You'll hear patients sometimes talk about, well, you know, this area can heal itself. And, you know, some books will call it the red, red zone, whereas others will say, you know, there's a avascular zone and it's not going to heal on its own. And they'll refer to that as the white, white zone. Um, and you'll have some patients even come in and say, hey, I have a tear in the posterior horn or the anterior horn. So breaking down the anatomy behind the meniscus there, what exactly do all these terms mean? And what would it mean if someone has, say, a posterior horn tear versus a anterior tear of the meniscus um, as far as like prognosis and things in your eyes are concerned? If you think about it in a three-dimensional way, if you look down on the meniscus from above, it's C-shaped um, and it has an attachment in the front and the back. And those we refer to as the meniscal root attachments. So when looking from above, it's C-shaped both on the inner and the outer side of the knee. In looking at it from the side though, it's triangular. It's widest at the periphery. It tapers to an apex centrally. So it's a fairly complex three-dimensional structure, but from a biomechanical standpoint, it's basically optimally shaped in a way that allows it to absorb stress in that as load is dissipated to it, it can actually expand and absorb stress and ultimately pass that to the attachment sites, which has important implications with regard to tears at those sites themselves. So the architecture of it really has a lot to do with the way in which tears in different locations affect the knee joint itself. Interesting. So I would imagine then if it was more of a posterior type tear, 
than posterior musculature. Um, we were talking before we hit record here about how some books will say that the semimembranosus muscle actually attaches to the posterior aspect of the medial meniscus. I would imagine that because of a posterior horn tear, you would more likely see pain with um, muscle contraction or stretching of the muscles that would attach to that uh, that relevant area anatomically. Yeah, I think anatomy definitely has a big impact on the way in which the, the injuries occur and the way in which they present. The, the knee loads, the knee joint itself loads posteriorly in flexion. So as you flex the knee more, the posterior horn is loaded more heavily, which is one of the many reasons why we see more tears posteriorly than anteriorly, particularly on the inner side of the knee. The tears tend to occur more posteriorly. And, and that the implication of that is that it's loaded more heavily in flexion. It also means that as meniscal tissue is damaged, you tend to get more cartilage loss in the back than in the front in association with meniscal deficiency. Um, the inner meniscus also is is less, uh, it is less mobile than the meniscus on the outer side of the knee. The meniscus on the outer side of the knee is not firmly attached at one point in particular where the popliteus tendon passes through. So it has more ability to move. The medial meniscus because of attachments from the semimembranosus and because of other factors is much less mobile. So it doesn't have the same capacity that the lateral meniscus has from that standpoint. Um, but like I said, it's, it's that anatomy though that really dictates oftentimes tear patterns and the impact that different tear patterns have on the knee joint. And would you say that the anatomical differences, um, we talked a little bit before in the ACL podcast on males versus females and Q angle and all these different things, would you say any of that comes into consideration for the meniscus as well, or is it a playing style consideration? Well, I mean, I think the way to think about that, Dan, is, is that the Q angle affects the patellofemoral joint in a way similar to your uh, mechanical axis of your knee affects the meniscal structures. So people who, for instance, are very knock-kneed, who have a valgus knee angle, they load their lateral meniscus much more heavily, whereas people who are more bow-legged or have a knee that bows out, they load their medial meniscus much more significantly. When you bear weight, your weight goes from the center of your hip to the center of your ankle. And the way in which the knee is, is positioned, whether it's in more knock need or uh, more of a, uh, of a bow-legged position is going to affect which compartment of the knee is more heavily loaded. And the compartment that's more heavily loaded is going to be the one that's more likely to see meniscal damage, cartilage damage. It follows that mechanical axis. I love that you bring up that mechanical point because that um, literally what you just described has become one of my go-to tests for the meniscus. I believe it's called Eggie's test or the standing McMurray, but essentially having a patient squat while internally rotated and then squat again while externally rotated. I found that recreating that kind of flexion with compression in a closed chain has um, done more for me to pick up on the meniscal irritation than say like the uh, just standard deep knee bend test in open chain. Yeah, and the reason that test is, <clears throat> is, so, is so accurate is first of all, when you're standing, you're loading the joint. Um, so you're going to put more strain in those involved compartments. But the second is that as you bend the knee in a loading position, you're loading that posterior horn more. And that's where the majority of, of tears tend to occur 
particularly on the inner side of the knee. So it's really, it's a provocative test that, that more or less goes after the factors that, that we just talked about in terms of how the meniscus gets loaded and where it typically tears. Yeah, definitely. As we've talked about these different, uh, as we've talked about the mechanisms for tears, um, there's a lot of different types of tears. So uh, people might have heard of a radial tear before, or they might have heard of different expressions like a parrot beak tear. Um, so if someone has a meniscus tear, there's a lot of different flavors that can come in. What are the most common types of tears that you see? And what does each one mean, really? You know, are some worse than others for prognosis or? So there are some pretty classically defined patterns, and then there's some that are just simply a mixture of, of different types. But in terms of the more classically defined tear patterns, the, the radial tear, certainly at, at, we talk about meniscal root tears or simply radial tears through other parts of the meniscus represent a tear that extends perpendicularly through the circumferential fibers. And they're really the most significant of the tears in terms of the impact that they have on the knee joint itself. When you create a, uh, an injury that extends through those circumferential fibers, in effect, it renders the meniscus incompetent. So that's a tear pattern that certainly, as we talk about these different patterns, is one that, that deems uh, treatment that is more aggressive, for sure. They're generally not tears that you want to observe just because they so quickly can lead to arthritic change inside the knee. Uh, so the radial tear pattern being the most certainly the most worrisome uh, in my practice. Other than that, we talk about bucket handle tears where essentially the tear is very peripheral. It's essentially a tear that is per, uh, that's parallel to those circumferential fibers, typically located very much at the periphery where pretty much the entirety of the middle third and the posterior third of the meniscus tear, the tear actually remains attached at the sites of attachment to the to the femur and the back or to the tibia and the back and also in the front so a fragment essentially buckets oftentimes into the middle of the knee and can cause locking symptoms those also are significant tears and those are tears that require pretty urgent treatment in terms of limiting the risk of progressive arthritic change the parapeak tears are essentially tears that are combinations where it will uh, actually involve a central portion where a fragment on one side will displace itself, but will actually detach from the other side. Those, those are certainly uh, significant tears as well. More difficult tears to repair, but I think for the most consequential ones are best treated with repair as well. And then we get into the other patterns, the horizontal tears, uh, which, which as the name implies, occur in a horizontal fashion through the meniscus, typically at the apex more or less split the upper and lower halves of the meniscus. Those are tears that um, removal of those tears can cause some significant uh, negative impact on the function of the knee. Um, those tears have historically been treated with meniscectomy, but we know that some, those are some of the tears that can see pretty rapid progression of arthritic change inside the knee. So there's been much more recent attention paid towards repair of those. I think certainly uh, I always counsel patients that if you're not having pain associated with that tear, you're better off actually observing that. So we'll try to manage those conservatively. And those are some tears that in particular, I think physical therapy has an important early role in trying to manage. Um, that's a tear pattern that classically has been described as one that can see some improvement with conservative treatment, certainly, and can be much more manageable than some 
of those other tear patterns. But th those are a couple of basic tear patterns and, and implications with regard to what each of those means. You may be one of the first surgeons I've heard say that surgery is not always the answer. Well, I think, I mean, I think, Dan, honestly, that for some patterns, it is the best option. It, for yeah. radial tears and for bucket handle tears, if you don't address those pretty quickly, you can get some significant arthritic change and, and really change the long-term outcome of that problem. Um, I think, though, for horizontal tears in particular, I tell people all the time, the reason to have an operation for that is because you simply cannot control the pain. It's, a, it's an operation for pain. That operation will increase the likelihood of developing some arthritic symptoms and change inside your knee over time as well. The operation, the arthroscopy and removal of that tissue, the only reason for that is to try to address pain in more of a short-term way. Um, but like I said, they're for tears that are horizontal, that generally are more acute, where the tissue is reasonably good tissue, particularly in young patients, repair is, uh, is certainly something that deserves some strong attention and oftentimes can be the right choice. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And some of the long-term outcomes from the meniscectomies, as you mentioned, is not always favorable. You've mentioned a few times about the arthritic changes that can occur if a meniscus is not, if a tear, a torn meniscus is not addressed quickly. And you've mentioned about the implications of if it's not appropriately managed from a surgical standpoint uh, quickly. So what types of arthritic changes are you referring to and how long would it take for those to set in, right? So if I'm, say I'm a 18 year old, I tore my meniscus, you know, if I just kind of let it go for a couple of years, will I start to develop the arthritic stuff in my twenties or will it be a much later on kind of picture? So I think the answer to that is that, that there's a lot of factors that figure <laughs> into that. It's not, it's not a simple answer, but I, I would, I, I do think though that the type of tear you have is a very strong indicator. Radial tears are going to progress more rapidly. If you have, uh, we talked about the mechanical alignment. If you happen to be someone who is bow-legged and you have a significant radial tear on the inner side of your knee, that's going to be more likely to progress with arthritis faster. And in general, the cartilage loss is going to be in the area around the meniscal deficiency first and then spread from there. So for posterior root tears, um, for example, on the inner side of the knee, the, the loss is generally going to be on the tibia and on the femur posteriorly initially and then expand from there. And for patients that have more significant lateral meniscus tears, they're going to get their cartilage loss on the outer side of the knee. For I, I think that the, the amount of uh, the risk and the progression of it is also dependent on the tear pattern. Radial tears essentially render the meniscus completely incompetent. Horizontal tears that don't have displaced fragments are going to have less of a risk of arthritic change unless, of course, the meniscal tissue is removed. But certainly for meniscal tears where there are displaced fragments, those displaced fragments are not having a protective role any longer. So in terms of meniscectomy as a treatment for those, I counsel patients that if you have a meniscal fragment that's displaced, that's currently not functioning, that's causing pain, removing that segment is not going to change the natural history of the problem all that much. But if you take a horizontal tear that currently is functioning pretty well and you remove that, that will impact the rate of progression of arthritis. And I think those are some of the cases where we see more rapid progression of arthritic change inside the knee following meniscectomy. 
historically, the radial tears in the back of the knee have been treated with meniscectomy. And we've seen through a number of studies of the natural history of, of meniscal root tears that debridement of those tears, if anything, makes the problem worse, not better. And it's really repair of those types of tears that, that offers the most positive uh, impact in terms of the outcome and the prognosis long-term with regard to pain, function, uh, the risk of need for knee replacement at some point. Repair is really the only option that, that is of benefit there. As far as the repair process is concerned then, is it a matter of suturing the meniscus back together or what would a repair look like? Or um, I guess I'll ask, is there ever a point that uh, meniscus is damaged so badly that meniscectomy is the only option? So short answer is yes, there, there are some <laughs> meniscal tears that simply are not amenable to repair. I'm pretty aggressive about repairing any tear that I think has a reasonable chance for success with repair. And I tell people all the time that it's actually not as important that the meniscus heals. What's most important is that it stays in place and it functions. So if you can get it via suturing to stay in place and to have a protective role, that, that really is what gives you the benefit of repair itself. But there are certainly some tears though where there's no hope of it, of it staying uh, in place and having a more protective role. And the problem in those situations in doing repair is that repair is, is as you know, a much longer recovery. So there's a protected weight bearing phase for four to six weeks. It's generally a four or five month process of, of rehab. And to go through that with little hope of success, I think is not in, in the patient's best interest. So in those situations, meniscectomy is the better option um, from the get-go. But I think it's an important conversation to have with, with patients and athletes beforehand so that they really understand what the implications of these different things are. Historically, I think in sport, there was a big um, demand by athletes to just simply have their meniscal tissue removed. But over time, I, we have seen through examples and through research what a negative impact that can have on an athlete's career and their ability to, to really stay engaged in competitive sport. And, and now we see much more of an interest in repair and, and attempt towards meniscal preservation. So I think that's just simply following the natural history of the problem and what we know to be the long-term results of of repair itself, but certainly there's, you know, short term, there's, a, there's some significant uh, delay and, uh, and, and athletes have to be willing to have a longer term view of the management of those meniscal tears to, uh, to really make the decision that's best long term for them. Definitely. And that long term picture should always be considered because athletes, um, I think a lot of people forget, have lives outside of sports and, you know, they want to be able to, you know, walk normally and exercise and be active for the remainder of their life. They don't want to be destined for, you know, a full knee replacement in their forties. Um, and we even have athletes now there's athletes in the NFL that are in their forties and they're still playing at an incredibly high level of sport. So naturally, if you have one of these injuries early on in your career, and you do mismanagement or you mismanage it or you um, choose one of those more short-term types of outcomes, you have to wonder what the implications of that would be later on in your career as well. Um, so I echo your point about always considering the uh, bigger picture and the long-term implications because going back to your point there on the suturing, 
I, I have to ask, does the suture change the expansive properties of the meniscus that you were talking about initially? So the, uh, the suturing technique is really dependent upon the type of tear as well. But in general, suture and trying to restore the normal architecture of the meniscus is the goal of any of those repair techniques. It's just that with some, it, uh, it involves suturing meniscal tissue back to meniscal tissue. But for some of these other tears, like these meniscal root tears, it involves actually suturing the meniscus back to the bone itself. Um, so the, the, uh, the configuration of the way in which the suture is passed is really dependent upon the type of, of tear that's present. You mentioned the blood supply briefly. And in general, historically, we've always associated the ability of meniscal tears to heal with repair to be most uh, related to the blood supply to the meniscus. The blood supply to the meniscus is very peripheral. It's really only the peripheral 25 to 30% in most mature adults, and even in children, maybe a third of it that, that has a good blood supply. So tears that extend towards the more central portion where the blood supply is not as good have historically been believed to not be as good of candidates for repair. But I think we have um, in some ways sort of rephrased that conversation and thought about it in different ways to where these radial tears uh, extend completely through the zone of the meniscus that doesn't have a good blood supply. The horizontal tears extend much through the zone of meniscus that doesn't have a good blood supply. So I think we've gotten somewhat past the concept that these are no-go zones for repair and understanding that the implications for removal are so significant that we're willing to accept some more risk of, of repair, not more completely healing, um, just in, in an understanding of what the implications of removal of that tissue are. And uh, what we've learned is that in, in many of those instances where even the blood supply is not ideal, these tears still have a reasonable opportunity to, to heal or to function in a, uh, in a more normal way which certainly makes repair the more advisable uh, treatment for those. Right. So it has the ability to um, come out with a favorable outcome, regardless of if the blood supply is there or not. If um, the blood supply alone is not like a considerable factor to determine success of a repair, would there still be value in some other form of management, like a PRP injection, um, you know, using an injection of platelets and blood cells to release uh, growth factors in that area to try and stimulate some kind of cellular, cellular regeneration? Would that be worthwhile or worth considering? Or is the fact that, you know, we're getting results without um, you know, any blood supply in certain tissue enough to say, hey, you know, let's not waste our time with something like PRP or stem cells or something like that? It's a good question. I think I don't I don't mean to suggest that the blood supply doesn't still remain an important issue because it clearly does. The tears that ultimately have the best chance of healing are those that have a good blood supply. The question is more whether the other tears still have a chance for success with repair. And, and that's where I think repair and sometimes some things that are counterintuitive to the conversation of blood supply come into play. So I think that's important. Historically, if you look at meniscal repair, 
what was used in in the past was actually uh, the formation of a fibrin clot. So a sample of a patient's blood would be obtained. Um, that sample would be prepared, and the clot that formed could actually be imbricated in the repair itself to try to augment healing. Um, and theoretically, that worked by basically trapping healing elements at the repair site in an effort to, to try to facilitate the formation of more healthy tissue. Um, I think the use of PRP or any of the biologics works by similar concept. The harder part with those is it, it's proven to be more difficult to necessarily entrap those elements at the repair site rather than simply dissipating them into the knee joint itself. Um, but I think there still is some potential to, to consider in that instance. What we do know is that the, one of the environments that, that also optimizes the chances for success the most with meniscal repair are, for instance, when, when meniscal repair is performed concomitantly with ACL reconstruction, in large part because there is a large amount of hemarthrosis or, or blood biologic elements in the joint afterwards from drilling of the tunnels, and that that can help to facilitate healing as well. So we're talking about similar concepts. The question is, how do we optimize that biologic response at the healing site itself? What, what I would also say, though, is that there is really no good evidence, um, or in my mind anyways, no compelling evidence to suggest to patients that if you have a meniscal tear in your knee, that an injection of PRP alone is going to lead to um, healing of that meniscal tear. I think that is a misrepresentation of the effect that, that a biologic injection such as PRP has. It really has, by all accounts, an anti-inflammatory effect inside the joint. The platelets give off cytokines and other anti-inflammatory cells that basically can work as a natural anti-inflammatory effect. But we really haven't been able to see uh, into any sort of um, convincing extent that that there is healing potential that exists with that, that that will ultimately lead to the healing of a tear or or even allow a, a patient who otherwise was going to need to undergo some type of arthroscopic treatment for it, that it would in some way allow that to heal without moving forward with that. So I think that it's misleading to suggest otherwise, but we are getting into these biologic principles and there potentially can be more to learn from that and, uh, and more to gain, which I think as we move forward and, and increase study into that realm that we will learn more about that. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, regenerative medicine, as they commonly call it, is definitely upcoming and exciting. One thing I uh, failed to bring up was the differential diagnosis. And we were talking before, I've seen one or two cases where there's this thing called plica syndrome and plica presented very similarly to a meniscus tear. In fact, it had a lot of the same symptoms. In this case, it was, there was buckling, there was catching, there was some locking, there was difficulty with terminal knee extension, there was pain with deep knee bending. And, you know, young me, um, I guess I'm still young, but I was just fully bought in. This is definitely a meniscus. And um, it, was, it blew my mind when the MRI said no meniscus tear. From your eyes, how would you differentiate between meniscus and plica? And what would you do for something like a plica syndrome? Well, I think plica syndrome is, is, falls under the realm of different patellofemoral disorders. Uh, classically, patellofemoral pain can localize to the intramedial aspect of the knee joint itself. 
the pain of that is typically going to be more localized to the medial facet of the patella or to the fat pad as the knee is brought into terminal extension. Plica syndrome though is really gets to a, a specific anatomic variant of that. The medial plica is a normal anatomic structure on the inner side of the knee. In some folks, though, either via repetitive microtrauma or a macrotraumatic event such as a fall, that plica can become thickened and can cause some mechanical symptoms over the, uh, the trochlea in the patellofemoral joint. So patients can classically get a snapping sensation. Um, and you're right, they can mimic meniscal tears to a large extent. But I typically find that those patients have a history of trauma to their knee. You can actually exhibit the mechanical symptoms. Um, on MRI, you can see some, some thickening of the anatomic structure. You may actually see some abrasion of the overlying articular cartilage. Whereas meniscal tears really should localize more to the medial joint line. They hurt more with twisting and pivoting and, and in hyperflexion. But plica, uh, plica can, be, can overlap with that as well, I think you always have to be careful in interpreting MRI of the knee with regard to medial meniscal tears in particular. Depending on the resolution of the MRI, uh, we sometimes can see some overread of medial meniscal findings where it's normal to have some signal within the meniscus that's contained within the substance of it. And sometimes if that is misrepresented as a signal that extends more to the joint surface, it gets referred to as a meniscal tear. And then lo and behold, someone's having an operation for a meniscal tear that doesn't necessarily exist. Many of those underlying problems are really more patellofemoral. And that's a problem that, as we all know, is, is really best treated in physical therapy for a pretty sustained period of time. But um, certainly plica can present in that way, I think you really want to try to localize the pain to the femoral condyle versus the joint line. And you want to be able to exhibit some mechanical symptoms on examination with that as well. Um, that's a problem that, that we still try a pretty extensive course of therapy for, but if ultimately they fail, then, then debridement of that plica can be successful. I would say that problem in general is a pretty rare problem. It, it does not occur anywhere near as frequently as patellofemoral syndrome in general or as meniscal tears do, but it does exist and, and it's an important part of the differential diagnosis. Definitely. Now you've mentioned examination. How would you go about examining a patient who presents with that stereotypical meniscus type pattern? Is there any special test that you like to look at specifically or what does your exam consider? So uh, different meniscal tears are going to examine a bit differently. One of the most important things with any of these injuries is the history. So when we talk about different types of meniscal tears, it's important to recognize whether it was a traumatic injury to the knee or whether this has been an ongoing sort of chronic degenerative process. Um, with regard to the meniscal root tears, for example, we know that patients who have essentially a normal knee and then something happens to their knee that initiates their pain. And from that point forward, they have a disability. Those are patients in whom repair of that meniscal root tear is very likely to be successful versus patients in whom they have sort of a, an indolent, slow-growing pain within their knee over a period of time. That's certainly much more suggestive that, that 
the arthritic component to their knee problem is, is likely to be more significant and repair may not be as successful in those instances. But in terms of the examination itself, posterior horn meniscal tears generally hurt in hyperflexion. It's always important to check for an effusion as well. Acute meniscal tears will sometimes have an effusion. Oftentimes patients who have more significant underlying arthritis will have a bigger effusion with that. So swelling in the knee can be pretty telling. Anterior horn tears, and they typically occur on the outer side of the knee, they typically hurt more when the knee's hyperextended. So they generally happen from repetitive hyperextension, kicking in, um, in soccer, any kicking sports, that really loads the anterior horn. Um, and those tears are generally going to be more painful in extension. So the, the position at which the tear is painful can be reflective of where the tear is located um, for certain. But independent of the physical exam, I think the history really can be very telling the location of the pain, meniscal root tears are much more frequently occur in the back of the, they hurt in the back of the knee. So someone will come in complaining of posterior knee pain versus other types of meniscal tears, which might hurt more on the joint line. When I first started seeing meniscal root tears um, coming out into practice, many of these patients would be misdiagnosed as having hamstring strains because they had this pain in the back of their knee that otherwise couldn't be very well explained. But yet on examination, they had swelling or an effusion within their knee, and their pain was really exacerbated by hyperflexion of their knee, not by active flexion of their knee, but more by just hyperflexion and rotational maneuvers. So it's really that flexion and rotational maneuver that loads the posterior horns and are, are most sensitive for diagnosing meniscal tears in general. Gotcha, gotcha. So more of like the Apley and McMurray kind of combo there, getting that stereotypical click, bending and twisting, and then um, probably doing the same in a closed chain environment as well, kind of like we talked about before with the eggies or just basic stand and twist, the classic Thessaly. Yeah, I think if you look at the most, uh, the, the tests that have the greatest uh, predictive value and the highest sensitivity, they all in some way load the knee joint either by actively standing or manually in compressing the knee joint and they involve torsional maneuvers either internal external or a combination of both rotation of the knee so that is really um the the uh the that's that's the um the position of the knee that loads it the most and the tests that are really the most accurate include a combination of those factors Definitely. And um, every now and then, um, it's, it's nice when all of them add up perfectly, but every now and then I'm sure you get one or two that it's like, well, you know, the, uh, the Apley maneuver gave them symptoms and they hate deep knee bending. Um, but, you know, I had them do a Thessaly and it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that painful. And I'm sure that's where you get into more of the biomechanical considerations of the meniscus, as you talked about earlier, of differentiating between where the tear is and what other structures could be involved. Yeah, they certainly don't all present in the characteristic way. Um, and once again, I think there are different factors that that can contribute to that, but certainly smaller tears um, may, uh, may not exhibit the same types of symptoms. And sometimes it's just simply a torsional maneuver at a certain degree of knee flexion that reproduces the symptoms. So uh, once again, I think that's where the, the history and talking to people is important because those people can still 
tell you that their symptoms happen when their foot is planted and they change direction. There's some kind of a torsional load uh, applied to their knee. They might be getting up out of a seated position. They might be just simply changing direction in one way or another. But it's really that association between torsional load and the pain that they're experiencing, I think, that, that should really um, clue us in as to what, what the underlying problem is. So on a rehab side, Dr. Dries, I know we mentioned before, it's very common to see a uh, non-weight bearing for four to six week uh, precaution for those undergoing a meniscal repair. I've also seen a few times where there's, well, actually quite often there's a flexion limitation as well for the first four to six weeks, usually about 90 degrees. Um, is that something that you usually implement as well? And is that mostly to avoid the uh, compressive load on the meniscus in those deeper ranges and knee flexion like you talked about earlier? So in, in the same way that we talked about the fact that different types of meniscal tears are repaired differently and we need to think about them differently, the rehab for different meniscal tears should be different for the same biomechanical reasons. So let's take, for instance, a radial tear. Radial tears are the one tear pattern that are most negatively impacted by early weight bearing because in effect, weight bearing there leads to uh, dissociation of the repair site. It, rep it, it separates the repair site from the strain that's applied to it. So you wanna try to delay weight bearing for those types of tears as long as possible. And in general, for most, and, and I implement that for my patients too, four weeks of toe touch weight bearing and then typically full weight bearing in six weeks. However, on the opposite end of that spectrum would be, let's say for instance, a bucket handle tear. So a bucket handle tear, when you reduce the bucket handle and you fix it in a secure fashion, if the knee is locked in extension, weight bearing on that tear should, if anything, reduce the tear, not cause a separation of the tear itself because weight bearing should lead to a peripheral force applied and basically compressing the repair site itself for those. So for a bucket handle tear, in particular, those that are very stable after we reduce them, I will let them partially weight bear much earlier as long as the knee is locked in extension. So the tear pattern, I think, has, has some significant effect on the ability to bear weight early and, and what potential negative impact they might have. We know that prolonged weight bearing is not good for joints. We know that prolonged non-weight bearing is not good for cartilage. It's not good for the osseous structures. So we don't want to delay that any longer than we have to. Um, and it's, it's just more necessary for some types of tears than others because of the effect that it has at the repair site. And then your next step from a rehab standpoint, I would imagine would be restoring range of motion. So um, would, would you chase the extension first, similar to what you would uh, expect with the ACL? Or would that also vary based on the type of tear and the location of the tear? Um, because as you mentioned before, those anterior horn tears are going to dislike extension a lot more, whereas the posterior would dislike the flexion more. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think extension is always important to try to obtain fairly quickly afterwards in repairing anterior horn tear, certainly in a knee that hyperextends a significant amount. We might delay that hyperextension a bit, but I, I really would uh, would try to get full extension back fairly quickly. Um, 
and the, the difficulty in getting flexion back quickly has more to do with the swelling and the effusion in the knee that blocks the ability to bend the knee more so. So that's why I really like uh, patients in physical therapy to focus on trying to get that effusion under control very quickly afterwards. Because once, as you know, once you get that, the flexion tends to come much more easily. But in patients in whom a large effusion is persistent in their knee, it can be very difficult to, to regain flexion. And, and as you know as well, very difficult to get their quads to fire very effectively or to get any kind of more co-contractive force within the knee um, to fire with, with a knee that has a significant effusion. So the, the, um, the swelling and the control of it is such an important part in the early post-operative course. Um, but certainly we've got to take into consideration all these different factors. And that's, that's where the meniscal repair protocols have, have been devised. And, and that's what guides them is more the principle as it is specific to that type of meniscal tear and understanding how all those different factors affect that tear and, and the repair of it in the early post-operative period. And I, I think you make a great point and great case for regaining the quad early even if it is a anterior horn tear, because we, we kind of need quad strength for well, pretty much everything, even just walking, you know, we might not see deep knee flexion angles when we're just walking on level ground, but we do see fairly high levels or I'm, let me rephrase that. We do see full extension, hopefully, when we are walking uh, on a flat level surface day to day. Um, I also, uh, can't echo your point about the swelling enough there. That was something you brought up in the ACL podcast uh, as well. And I think too often we like to get lost in the, you know, the cool stuff and just do more, do more, do more. When in reality, sometimes if we do too much, it can actually be a detrimental effect. I, I think that there's a therapeutic window um, to what we do from a rehab standpoint. And ultimately we need to kind of optimize the dose for that patient where we you know, we can't do anything. We, we can't just not do anything because then we're not going to see any progress, but we also can't overdo it because then we're going to make a already pissed off knee even more pissed off. Um, so we kind of need to find that Goldilocks zone of load it enough to cause change, but don't overload it to the point where you're going to worsen things like swelling that are only going to make it more difficult for you later on in your rehab. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a balance. And um, I think in the past, Many of the protocols were very anecdotal, and um, there was not a lot of nuance between the uh, the protocol for different types of tears. But having learned more and more about biology, about repair, about rehab principles, I think we have uh, more aggressive protocols that, you know, I think take advantage of the limits that we're able to push, but at the same time, like you said, trying not to exceed those limits. So there is a balance and, um, and the balance is going to depend as, as I've said, on the type of tear that you have and the type of repair that's present. But for all of those working on edema control early is really an important part of things from the range of motion standpoint, from the quad standpoint. I think of the brace, you know, we talk about braces all the time. The brace is helpful early on because it can relatively immobilize the knee. It can keep the knee in an extended position, but it also helps to keep the knee stable and allow you to ambulate when your quad control isn't good enough to do it otherwise. 
the negative impact of the brace though is that as we all know the longer you're in the brace the more difficult it is to get your quad to recover the more difficult to regain your motion to get terminal extension um, at heel strike to walk with more normal uh, gait pattern and i think it just ultimately slows down your recovery the longer you are in it so i try to get people out of the brace as soon as they start bearing weight and I really try to counsel patients that the thing that protects your knee during the rehab process is your crutches. It's not your brace. Your brace is not protecting your knee from having a, a huge weight-bearing incident on it, which that's what really most would imperil your knee. The crutches do that. So the crutches are an important part of my protocol is typically we'll get rid of the brace a couple of weeks before will actually get rid of the crutches. The crutches we're gonna stay with until the gait pattern normalizes more so, and that's either one crutch or two crutches. But I think they have an important role in, um, in helping to protect the knee and also allowing the progression of the quad and the range of motion and other things to follow a more natural progression. I like that. I like that progression a lot. Um, Long-term from a return to sport and the big picture kind of thing, I would say from what I've seen, usually it's somewhere around the six to eight month mark, depending on the type of meniscus tear, the location of the meniscus tear and their overall response. Is that usually the prognosis that you see as well, somewhere around the six to eight month mark, or does it tend to be longer or um, in some cases even shorter? I think for isolated meniscal repair, um, and there's a difference here, obviously, for isolated meniscal repair, certainly a minimum of six months. Um, and as you said, it, it also is affected by the type of tear where some tears are inherently more stable than others. A bucket handle tear that's reduced and secured with multiple sutures is a pretty stable repair. A radial tear, on the other hand, is a different type of tear pattern that's going to be at higher risk for having further trouble. Tend to be a little bit more conservative with those but certainly for the bucket handle tears or more stable tear patterns, um, six to eight months is a pretty typical time frame to be getting back to doing more high-risk types of activities. Dr. Dries, we've touched on everything from, you know, the mechanism of injury of a meniscus, what it is, what it does, all the way up to long-term return to sport and so many different considerations along the way. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks or anything else that we uh, didn't quite hit on or didn't quite touch on that we should have? Yeah, I, I would just summarize it and say that I think meniscal preservation is really the goal of managing any of these injuries. And it's not to say that it's always an achievable goal, but um, I tell patients all the time that if you have a repair, you have a chance. If you have that tissue removed, you really don't have a... Uh, a significant chance at success. So we try to, in instances when it's feasible, repair tears that um, have, a, have a reasonable chance for success, but also understand that that's not, always, that's not always a possibility. But I think preservation of the meniscus is always the goal. Um, and that's true for all these different tear patterns. And, and the other thing that I think is really important is to really have a long conversation with someone beforehand about what a meniscal tear means. I think for a lot of people, they've thought of these injuries as being rather insignificant injuries that don't have any long-term implications. But for some of these tear patterns, they do. And, and it's important for, for patients and athletes alike to understand that beforehand so that they can make more informed decisions. I try to make that decision with the patient so that beforehand we have an understanding
about what is in front of us, what decisions need to be made, and what sacrifices the, the patient or athlete might need to make if we do undertake a repair, in part because of the longer recovery, but also because the risk that at some point, if it doesn't heal, they might need to have another operation to remove any any segments that haven't more completely healed. So there's definitely a um, you know a partnership in terms of of understanding the problem and making decisions about how best to move forward and um, and what that means for for the knee, both short term and long term. Yeah, definitely. It's certainly a complicated clinical picture, a complicated diagnosis, and uh, there can definitely be some difficult decisions around how to manage the meniscus. And that just, you know, emphasizes the point even more about getting to a competent, a confident surgeon and a confident uh, rehabilitation team to help you get back to where you were uh, previously, because ultimately, I don't think anyone wants to, you know, see a loss of function for any reason whatsoever. So ideally, we get you right back to where you want to be. And the better your providers are, the more likely you are to get there. Yeah, completely agree, Dan. Dr. Dries, um, for people who want to reach out to you and uh, connect with you, follow you, where can they find you at? So you can find me. I practice at MedStar Sports Medicine, both in the Towson Timonium region and in Ellicott City. Um, so you can reach me there, or um, I'm also on Instagram at sportsdocdries. Um, so uh, between those two, those are, those are my uh, contact information. Finally, out of the MySpace era, I see. Yes, finally, you're right. It, it, it took me a while. I, I, I will admit that it took me a while, but uh, but I've tried to embrace it as much as possible. And I really I, I love the interaction and love the connectivity that uh, that it uh, that it provides. Definitely, definitely. We'll link to all of that below too. So if you didn't quite catch that info, you can just click there and check out all Dr. Dries has to offer. Dr. Dries, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.